Hello and welcome to Two C Fans at Moat. I'm actually your one C fan today. Uh, our co-host Joe is away. Uh, we miss him very much, but he'll be back for the next episode. And in the meantime, um, I'm Haley Riker, and I'm going to give you some updates from the whole past year at Moat. We're going to do our annual year in review episode. So we had a lot going on with science, education, animal rescue, and other projects this year. I'm going to start with a fun one. Um, we released a sea turtle named Sea Salt wearing a satellite transmitter tag in February off of Lido Beach. And uh, since then, Sea Salt has had a tremendous journey. Sea Salt's tag uh, transmitted through late July. By then, he had traveled a meandering path up and down and offshore of southwest Florida. He swam a total distance of about 1,470 miles. Um, according to his track, and he covered about an 80-mile range north to south along the coast, which is really pretty cool. Sea turtles can travel long distances, and it's exciting for us to get to work with a male sea turtle because males are tagged less often. Unlike females, uh, they don't come ashore to nest, and they're usually uh, only available to us when they're treated and released in our hospital like sea salt was. And in the theme of tagging and tracking animals, um, we tracked a number of sharks this year, with help from uh, the organization OSEARCH. Our scientist, Dr. Robert Huter, um, and lots of other scientists join OSEARCH for expeditions. And uh, one expedition um, this year, this past year, tagged two great white sharks and two tiger sharks during a three-week trip that concluded in March 2017. And I picked this one to share because we had some really neat updates from the sharks that were tagged. Um, one shark named Hilton, uh, which is a white shark. He was tagged off South Carolina, and he traveled 6,368 miles to Florida, to Nova Scotia, to North Carolina, and then he last pinged on December 14, 2017. Um, and then Savannah, another uh, white shark, uh, she traveled 3,000 miles. I'm not going to give you all of their locations, just their uh, distances, because that would take a long time. Uh, we had a tiger shark named Weimar who traveled 2,033 miles. And then we had Beaufort, um, a tiger shark again, traveling 930 miles. Uh, he must be the, uh, the slow one of the group. I'm just kidding. That's pretty impressive. Um, and then in August, we had another O-Search expedition with moat scientists near the eastern part of Long Island, which uh, we, we satellite tagged 11 baby great white sharks. And uh, that's pretty, pretty darn impressive. We love to see the results of those expeditions. And uh, the latest update we have is that one of the um, O-Search tag sharks that was tagged off Massachusetts in 2016, her name is Miss Costa, she actually showed up off of Tampa Bay area, um, way offshore of Tampa Bay area in the Gulf of Mexico um, <clears throat> right after the new year. So you never know where these guys are going to go. Now I'm going to move on from uh, tagging and tracking for a bit here and move into red tide. This year has been a pretty incredible year for our studies of Florida red tide, which is the algae Karenia brevis, which you guys have probably heard of. Um, that's the algae that can make you cough on the beach, can give you um, irritation in your uh, eyes, nose, and throat, and it can also kill fish and sicken or even kill um, a variety of wildlife. So we're always working on new ways to track and understand red tide and help the public um, deal with uh, this kind of naturally occurring algae bloom along our coast. So one of our scientists, Dr. Tracy Finera, um, made some exciting progress with her colleagues in a big project this year. 
Um, we have this project called the HABSCOPE project. It's funded by NASA and it's led by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration with partners from the Gulf of Mexico Coastal Ocean Observing System. Um, the team developed this smartphone app with a low-cost microscope attached uh, to identify the red tide algae and water samples from the beach. Uh, and this system has been uh, tested, uh, and we've been field testing it since November 2016. And now, as of uh, December 2017, we had gotten 11 moat volunteers in nine different locations trained to sample the water and check with this new system once per week um, when no red tide bloom was detected. But later this year, late in the year, we started to see bloom concentrations of red tide algae, and so we upped that to sampling three times a week. And we're working to um, review the results that our volunteers are getting and validate them compared with the way that, you know, scientists normally count red tide cells to see if this system is working. And we really just want to be able to expand the amount of red tide information available to the public, and we're hoping that this, this really cool technology, um, it uses... It uses special software to, um, to visualize and identify the red tide algae cells in the water um, and to tell you how much is there and whether it may warrant a health concern. So we're hoping we can help this technology and work with this great team to get this, um, to get this advancing. Speaking of tools you can use to uh, report Florida red tide, we released a new smartphone app in 2017 um, where anybody can use their smartphone to say, hey, I, you know, I'm seeing discolored water, I'm, I'm coughing on the beach, experiencing respiratory irritation, or I'm seeing dead fish. You can report all those things that can all be potential indicators of red tide. The app is called Seasick, <laughs> which is C-S-I-C, it stands for Citizen Science Information Collaboration. And you can get the app right now. It's free, and you can get it from uh, 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 Google Play or the App Store on your iPhone. And we really encourage you to try it out because you'll not only be, um, you know, having fun reporting how the beaches are, whether there's possible red tide indicators or not, but you'll also be helping other people who want to enjoy the beach and want to know what the conditions are like out there. Um, so please try that one out. Uh, CSIC. You can search for Mote Seasick in your uh, App Store or Google Play. And um, while we continue on Red Tide, uh, we also advanced another type of technology this year called Ozonation. Um, we, it uses ozone to try to destroy Florida red tide algae cells and its toxins in water. We are not field testing this yet. It's right now we're just in the stage of developing and testing a system to use in a tank at moat. Um, and they had some tests in December with this system, but ultimately the goal is to do further tests and then hopefully try the system out in um, small areas like uh, canal systems along the shore to see if we can reduce some of the red tide impacts in those, uh, those localized areas where, you know, uh, human coastal life and the environment meet. And then one last red tide update. Um, in 2018, we are expecting um, to test an aerial, an aerial drone uh, to enhance our red tide monitoring. If you've listened to our podcast, you might have heard uh, Dr. Vince Levko talking about this really cool technology, a flying drone that would carry a hyperspectral camera to help us de detect red tide um, and algae blooms from the air. So we're excited to see when that comes along, and we'll be uh, keeping in touch with Dr. Vince Levko about that project. Now moving on to a whole other area of moat. 
Um, we're really proud of our educational programs this year, and we, uh, in February 2017, we announced uh, the first Sarasota chapter of the group Scubanauts International, which guides young men and women to uh, participate in marine science through underwater research and conservation activities. And uh, the update is that, you know, they're doing great. They are hosting meetings on the third Thursday of every month, and they uh, participate in quarterly regional meetings um, and have the opportunity, just like other chapters, to sign up for monthly dives. So if you're um, a young person who likes to dive, uh, check it out. So uh, now another topic from our research section. Uh, so it's been seven years. Uh, well, it was seven years in 2017 since the BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. And that was one of our big areas of progress in research in 2017. MOAT is part of this consortium uh, known as Sea Image, and it's centered at the University of South Florida College of Marine Science. And uh, we are doing uh, fish health research uh, to understand in a really controlled way the impacts of oil components on fish that live out in the Gulf of Mexico. And uh, this has been going on. It's a multi-year project. And during 2017, we collected 1,564 blood and tissue samples from fish that had experienced varying concentrations of oil components in our system at Moat Aquaculture Research Park. Um, and so we're still working on this. It's part of a multi-year and multi-discipline study of um, oil spill um, components for relating to the oil spill in the Gulf. So as of late 2017, our research, you know, is producing some preliminary data suggesting that oil-exposed fish can have suppressed immune function, um, whether they encounter the oil in their food or the water. And these kinds of findings and others will you know, help researchers working in the wild know what impacts to look for in the wild fish. And uh, we're continuing the research. We um, expect them to make wonderful progress over the next two years. Um, and Sea Image partners as a whole are working to synthesize their results of lots of different projects and put them into a more meaningful context for, say, the natural resource managers who want to address oil spill impacts. Um, we got some, and Sea Image got some great new funding in late 2017, so we're really excited to see them keep making progress. Great job, guys. <laughs> uh, and uh, another really exciting news story from this year um, happened in the Florida Keys. We opened our brand new coral research facility. We call it the Elizabeth Moore International Center for Coral Reef Research and Restoration also known as IC2R3. <laughs> um, and we chose that name to honor Elizabeth Moore, one of the first lead donors to the facility, and a very generous and great lady. Um, and the facility has so much more, um, so many more tools and systems to advance coral reef research, you know, new seawater systems, raceways, experimental tanks, equipment to process and prepare samples, really everything that scientists need. And it's designed to, you know, enhance what we're already doing there, which is bringing in people from around the world to study and benefit coral reefs, which we call the rainforests of the sea because that they really serve a lot of species. Um, and right after we installed this facility, you know, we had built it to be a Category 5 hurricane-resistant facility, and in September it was put to the test. Um, we encountered Hurricane Irma, which blew through the Keys as a Category 4 storm, um, and it had, you know, it wasn't, uh, it, it didn't um, 
certainly didn't wash away our facility. It stood very strong, and uh, but it moved right through there. So a lot of people um, had a lot of struggles around that hurricane, but our building stood strong and did great. Um, the only thing was its exterior infrastructure, like coral raceway systems and tanks and chillers, were impacted. So um, we had we were working to uh, raise some funds to to help with this, and you can do that by going to moat.org forward slash hurricane Irma, and you can help us um, complete our you know recovery of those external parts of the the lab and help us continue doing good work there. But we, uh, that facility began to reopen just over a week after Irma, and many operations resumed gradually you know, over the ensuing weeks to months. Um, it was, but we had some challenges with underwater operations, with murky water and that kind of thing, um, long after the storm passed through, making it a little harder to uh, assess what was going on in the field. Um, and you can check um, the websites of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, their Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary. They have been sharing some updates from the many partners that have been checking out how the, um, the reef, the coral reef environments of the Keys have been doing uh, in the wake of Hurricane Irma. Now, we had a lot of um, coral work in the field just before um, Hurricane Irma. In June, we planted 500 uh, coral fragments with the great volunteers from the Combat Wounded Veteran Challenge and the Scuba Knots International Youths. Um, they did a wonderful job, and then we also um, surpassed a milestone for planting 12,000 corals at Fort Zachary Taylor Historic State Park in Key West, another of our great projects. Uh, and the hurricane impacts to the sites were really variable. Uh, the Fort Zachary Taylor corals remained in really good condition um, following the hurricane, whereas the corals of the Luke Key area um, where we did our planting with the veterans and scuba knots, they took a significant hit, um, including the wild corals that were there. Um, they did take a hit, and it really uh, underscores that the reef is critical to protect the coastlines. It helps uh, diminish the wave action that could be ser more serious for us if the reefs weren't there. Um, and, you know, seeing that some of the reefs did take a hit down there really underscores, you know, one of our missions to restore coral reefs at a massive scale. So we are redoubling our efforts to do that. Now moving on to a different area of our research, we, uh, we have a lot of studies designed to uh, produce like new intellectual property, new ways, um, new technology, that kind of thing. This year, a couple of our scientists um, patented a way to distinguish male from female fish. So um, <laughs> the project was called Fish Sexual Characteristic Determination Using Peptide Hormones. Um, it's a method and a test kit to measure hormone concentrations, certain kinds of hormones, in, uh, to determine which fish are male or female. And it's designed to work at, uh, with younger fish than other methods can assess. So wh why do we care, right? Well, um, we are... We think this is a really useful method for um, production of aquaculture fishes that are, you know, commercially useful. One example would be sturgeon. Um, if you're raising sturgeon for their caviar, you may want to tell which fish are male or female so you can dedicate more time and energy to the higher value females that produce the caviar. And, you know, this, this kit can also be used to study uh, the life history of wild fish where it'd be important to know how many males and how many females you have. Um, so uh, our moat scientists have done some great work like that this year. 
This year, we also uh, worked a lot on the development of education programs for adults. We educate people of all ages, and we're really expanding what we can offer to adults, including teachers, in 2017. So um, in 2017, we announced that we were going to have teacher professional development workshops. We announced those in June. Um, and the next round of them um, are going to be announced on our website. So you can uh, check moat.org forward slash professional development if you're a teacher and you want to um, expand your marine science um, and teaching skills. Uh, we also announced a lifelong learning course for any adults who want to take part. Um, we, we announced that they would open in January 2018. So this month you can go check them out. Um, there are going to be 10 comprehensive marine science classes that you can use for professional development, enrichment, and just get a closer connection to the ocean. Um, and you can get the entire semester of 10 classes or individual ones at moat.org forward slash lifelong learning. Um, now moving on to some fisheries, uh, fisheries science updates. So this year, um, early in the year, we released about 450 juvenile snook into Philippi Creek in Sarasota County for studies of how they use the habitat and, uh, yeah, just understanding how these important sport fish use these environments. Um, we raised them at Moat Aquaculture Research Park, our facility in eastern Sarasota County. We fitted them with these pit tags uh, that, that are detected when the snooks swim by these solar-powered antenna arrays that we placed at um, properties along the creek with the help from the property owners. And we want to just inform um, resource managers in the community to help support snook populations. So gathering this data, we hope, will help us do it. And uh, so we had one release early in the year, and then in September, we released 949 snook into North Creek in Sarasota. It's a different part of our research there. And uh, in our, by November, we were reporting that over the past two years, we've released 5,620 tagged snook with uh, either these pit tags or with wire tags for identification in the past two years. So it's really, really cool. It's part of a long-term effort that... Over like many years, we've released 61,000 snook to local waters to better understand these fish. And uh, by fine-tuning how we, the strategy of how we do this, how we release them, um, we've improved their survival in the wild by nearly 200% over time. Um, so it's, it's both about understanding what snook do in the wild and how we can, how we can replenish wild populations um, of these fish because a lot of people love to fish for these guys, so we want them to stay around and be healthy for a long time. Now moving on to some marine mammal news from 2017. We uh, had learned from our friends at the Sarasota Dolphin Research Program that a dolphin named Ginger um, was observed with a newborn calf July 6th in Sarasota Bay. And you might remember Ginger because Moat actually rehabilitated her in our hospital um, years ago. And this is her second calf. Uh, she had her first calf in 2015, but it disappeared. And uh, that's not too surprising. You, can, you often can lose firstborn calves. It's not unusual in dolphins and many other marine mammals. But um, the update here is that Ginger was seen with her, her latest calf as recently as uh, in December 2017. So... We wish that calf uh, good health and a happy new year. And uh, our Sarasota Dolphin Research Program colleagues, they're a Chicago Zoological Society program in collaboration with Moat. And they run the world's longest 
running wild or study of a wild dolphin population here in Sarasota Bay. And beyond just, you know, our our uh, Ginger the Dolphin story, we learned that there were a record number of bottlenose dolphin calves born this year in Sarasota Bay. Great news. Um, as of December, uh, I think we had, uh, let's see, we had 21 new calves join the dolphins uh, living in the bay this year, and as of December, 17 had survived. Um, so we're always happy to hear of lots of new calves being born. Um, and here's one from one of the largest animals we study. Uh, in uh, November, there was a new study published on whale sharks. And we learned from this study just how important it can be that citizen scientists, you know, people who are just diving or snorkeling or just on vacation as ecotourists, when they take pictures of whale sharks, we can use that information for science. This study shared um, the data that was gathered by these ecotourists and citizen scientists, there's a project where they can submit their photos. The project is called Wild Book for Whale Sharks. And uh, when people submit photos, uh, this database helps scientists identify the individual animals. And if you identify them, say, in different places over time, you may learn about their movement patterns and what habitats they go to. And in the paper, um, we talked about 20 hotspots for whale sharks around the globe. So. The citizen scientists have been helping us um, identify some of those hot spots and, uh, and expand our understanding of the ones that we already know about. So moat scientists were um, one of, I think, dozens of co-authors on this paper, and the authors came from all around the world. So it was pretty fantastic effort led by the group Eek Ocean Inc., and now a little closer to home, um, we had a wonderful story that sea turtle nesting went really well this year on Longboat Key through Venice. Um, the sea turtles in this area that moat monitors, they laid a near record number of nests in 2017. Um, and we monitor that stretch of beach, Longboat Key through Venice, every day of the nesting season. That's May 1st through October 31st. So after the season wrapped up, we uh, were able to report that we had seen 4,503 nests combined on all these beaches. And of those, um, most of them, 4,424, were laid by loggerhead sea turtles. 79 were laid by threatened green sea turtles. And it's, um, it's pretty cool because this year, um, the number of green sea turtles in particular broke their local record. And the total number came near to breaking our, our record. We've been monitoring the stretch of beaches for about 36 years, so when we get any kind of record or near record, it's great news. We also had though some challenges in 2017. Um, we uh, had several turtles running afoul of beach furniture, um, so interacting with beach furniture, sometimes dragging chairs cut on their backs. In total, we, total, uh, we found uh, 104 local sea turtles had interacted with beach furniture, which is dangerous to them, um, which is the reason that, that um, property owners are asked to remove the beach furniture at night, either stack it as close to the dune as possible or just remove it from the beach. Um, and when you do that, you're leaving a better beach and a safer beach for sea turtles. And finally, uh, some great news from Moat Aquarium. We uh, announced our newest exhibit in December, uh, and it's open today. It's open January right now through uh, June 15th, 2018, and it's called Sea Debris, Awareness Through Art. 
The exhibit features a whole bunch of beautiful um, sculptures made out of plastic and other trash from Oregon, from the Oregon coastline. This, all this trash was transformed into art by a project called Washed Ashore. And uh, the sculptures are huge. You can see a great white shark, a sea turtle, jellyfish, um, all kinds of things made completely out of trash. The point is to uh, educate people about how serious the problem of marine debris is and give people some ideas. Um, come and check out the exhibits, but also read the tips alongside them and get some ideas about how to reduce, reuse, and recycle. And uh, one of our happy stories, closing out the year, we uh, received a, a whole bunch of cold, stunned sea turtles um, from the New England Aquarium. These turtles had been rescued, um, and they, they had become too cold in the wild. They needed rehabilitative care, and they were brought to us in uh, December. They were part of a group of 46 turtles, and we got 10 of them, um, and others went to other aquarium, aquarium facilities. And uh, so we've been evaluating them and um, giving them antibiotics and care, and they are all doing great as of January 2nd. So that's great news. And our stranding investigations program that rescues and, uh, and responds to distressed and deceased marine mammals and sea turtles in our area, they have had a darn busy year. They have fielded over 580 calls from members of the public who are usually calling in to report that they've seen an animal that may be in distress or dead. Um, and they have done some, some really uh, hard work this year. They have partnered in this big response for a mass stranding of false killer whales. And in that case, that was uh, in, in early this year, um, Moat and lots of others went to respond to these whales that had stranded and um, most of them had died on the beaches in the Everglades region. So the goal then becomes to learn as much as you can to take samples and all that. Um, they also responded to or recovered 18 dolphins and whales um, and 110 sea turtles, some of which you know were alive and were brought to our sea turtle hospital here at Moat. We also helped with uh, four manatee rescues and 17 recoveries of deceased manatees this year. So great work to our stranding investigations program. And I'm gonna close out the podcast today with a few, um, few numbers that speak to the, the impact of Moat. This year, our scientists did an incredible job. They uh, wrote or co-authored uh, 59 peer-reviewed scientific journal articles, guest edited an issue of a scientific journal, they authored or edited three books, five chapters, and produced two published conference proceedings and 94 moat technical reports. It's a really productive year. Our aquarium and education and outreach programs combined helped nearly 400,000 people become more ocean literate with, you know, education programs on site, digital learning, and all that great stuff. And finally, we couldn't do all of that without the incredible support of our donors, our trustees, and our staff and volunteers. And we have more than 200 staff and more than 1,600 volunteers. So uh, these guys should all pat themselves on the back. It's been a great year. So we wish you guys a happy new year. Uh, tune in for Two Sea Fans podcast every two weeks here at Moat. And um, best fishes. <laughs>